Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. We are diving into something I was supposed to do literally like over a year ago. And that is essentially a a book report slash description slash story of Vito Dumas and his Alone Through the Roaring Forties. Yes, we're finally... Uh, going to get down to business. I'm still up here in Michigan. I have just a couple of days left before I myself head out to sea and uh, kind of sitting here and I'm trying to figure out what kind of show to do. And then it dawns on me that I still have this book that survived the knockdown. Um, and uh, it was given to me by a gentleman named Peter, which it will be returned once I finish it, uh, which hopefully will be over the, just the next couple of days. But uh, yeah, this book, it's, it's just an epic, epic tale. And I think the best way to go about it is going to be, I've only gotten through basically the beginning, the forward, all that sort of stuff, uh, just about to the time where he's actually setting sail for his first leg of this journey. And I think my game plan will be to kind of do this in about three or four parts and uh, this will just be like the intro to it and then uh, we go through the rest and that way it's kind of fresh in my mind. I'm, I'm taking notes and stuff trying to do a pretty good job here for everybody and I don't want to be any sort of spoiler for the book but I mean obviously uh, it's it's an epic sea tale. It's one of the first, it's really the first solo uh, circumnavigation of the world via the three capes um, through the Southern Ocean. And um, just a couple things. So, uh, well, before we start the show, <laughs> like I always say, if you want to help support the podcast, that would be fantastic. Become part of the Patreon family that helps keep this show uh, ad-free and just keeps it going, really, more than anything. Really appreciate all the support from everybody uh, over the years. Uh, link in the description for that. We've got obviously the merch shelf out there. Link in the description for that sort of stuff. Uh, if you don't want to do like a subscription, we also uh, have the links for Venmo and pay PayPal in there. And big thanks to all those who have uh, tossed a little coin Sparrow's way. Really is much appreciated. Um, and then obviously we got the children's book series. We got two books out now. Third one should be coming at the end of the month. And then. Uh, if you just want to contact the show, reach out to sailingintooblivion.com and uh, follow the podcast button to the contact the show. Those go directly to me. And uh, yeah, we'll just get right into it. So all this, uh, so it's Alone Through the Roaring Forties, Vito Dumas. Excuse me, I got like a little bit of a runny nose all of a sudden. Hate that. Um, oh, it's the nerves. But uh, the translator, obviously, uh, he's from he's an Argentinian, and um, but the the translator threw in a pretty cool uh, description of everything and all that sort of stuff, and that is do 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 peeling through a couple of these things. Uh, it basically gives you a whole rundown of everything that's uh, that's going on, but. Essentially, yeah, the, the, the trip is Buenos Aires to Cape Town, South Africa. Then it goes to Wellington, New Zealand, and then across to Valparaiso in Chile, and then around the Horn back to Buenos Aires. So there's three stops in the whole voyage. And just, oh, I mean, he leaves really early too. But the, the forward tra from the translator, Raymond jo Johns, um, kind of goes through and gives a bit of a synopsis. So, so Vito was born in 1900, and um, his first real big crossing, because he's a farmer, and essentially, you know, he comes from a farming family. They're just pretty much down there, and uh, um, he didn't really have much of an affinity for the sea besides reading books and all that sort of stuff. So in a lot of ways, um, much like myself, it was the books that, that started or planted the seed, if you will. Uh, but he takes his first 
big trip. I, I think, you know, things, times get tight as he, as he's getting older and he has to work and do all this sort of stuff. So he heads over to France. Um, and he doesn't really talk much about the actual trip, but I believe his first big sailing trip is from France back to Buenos Aires. And that was in 1931 uh, aboard his first little boat. And, uh, that was, oops, got Jim Rand on the phone. Pause. All right, and we're back. Sorry about that. Oh, he's got to pick up the phone when the old man calls. Especially if you're reading like an old sailing novel, you know? The old man's been on enough boats with me to, I don't know, maybe he just sensed it. But, um, yeah, so essentially his his first big trip, like I said, is um, all the way from France to Buenos Aires. And, you know, one of the things that I'm getting a sense of because – you know, outside of his big trip, you know, around the, the Roaring Forties, he also, after that, did quite a few long distance, you know, around the Atlantic with a lot of places that he could have stopped. And um, that's something that is quite unusual to pass by places like the Azores, Cape Verde Islands, Bermuda, um, especially on a voyage of, you know, three months most people would would be going crazy stir crazy out there um but for some of us myself included one of the really interesting things is to spend quite a lot of time offshore and away from land and getting into that rhythm of the sea and it's it's a tough life and it's harsh and it's dangerous um so it takes kind of a I don't want to say a certain type of person, but a certain type of mental state to be able to enjoy that for extended periods of time. And it seems like Vito is definitely uh, right up that alley. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to really, uh, I'm going to enjoy and also relate to this book, uh, maybe even more than some of the other greats that inspired me to get out there and do this stuff. Uh, but essentially, quick synopsis, 1942 comes, he sets off in June. Uh, from from Buenos Aires, June in the South Atlantic is is pretty much you're you're getting into winter time, so that's pretty ugly. And uh, I can only imagine how nasty that trip was to get over to Cape Town, and then he from Cape Town he's only there for a bit, and then he heads to Wellington, New Zealand, gets to Wellington, New Zealand. It's like. Um, and then goes from there to Valparaiso, uh, Chile. He's there by the 12th of April. So now we're even, we're getting back into like the fall down there and then set sail uh, to go around the horn for the last hop uh, back up to Buenos Aires and essentially becomes the first uh, solo Cape Horner. And I think that's probably does, you know, defined as a Cape Horn trip has to be like to be a Cape Horner. I think you have to, it has to be like a nonstop 2000 mile voyage, or it has to go from like 50 degrees North in one ocean to 50 or 50 degrees South in one ocean to 50 degrees South in the other ocean. You can't just like skip around Cape Horn in a day and, you know, sort of expect to, to be labeled as that. But, uh, I think the funny little quote though, uh, he talks about that last leg and his only quote is never, never again. Uh, which I think is pretty funny. Cause I've said that myself when I got back from my big trip and, uh, look what happened to me. So pretty crazy. This is going to be a really great read. Um, like I said, I hope it's not like a spoiler for, for anybody. Um, but yeah, the game plan is, uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting up here. I got, I got a couple days left. I really don't have much else to do besides pack and like a moron. I'm sitting in the you know basement watching like movie after movie and just kind of not utilizing my time very wisely. Uh, I've got a lot on my mind as far as some, some meetings and decisions I got to make and all that sort of stuff. And I think I was trying to I don't know, like avoid it. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, I'm just, I was like, man, I, this is dumb. I'm up in this lovely house. Uh, we've got the, the wintertime landscape. I'm going to, I'm going to get back from the chiropractor today, uh, start a big old roaring fire in the fireplace and crank back with this book and read for the foreseeable future or the foreseeable future till I finish this thing. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll, we'll, the next 
next uh, cut in we'll have will be his trip across the South Atlantic. And I hope you guys enjoy the story and hope my nostrils open back up so that I sound a little more normal. But uh, without doing like all the facts and figures, I think uh, I should be able to retell this story in uh, a pretty cool way. Hopefully we'll see. All right. Thanks for listening. And here comes the next section. Well, in just those quick milliseconds, I have read uh, the next oh, 50 pages or so in the book, and uh, our, our voyaging sailor, Vito Dumas, has crossed the South Atlantic Ocean. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> this is such a great story and such a great book. Oh, my gosh. Um, hard to... Uh, hard to not relate with this stuff i'll tell you that much it's it's pretty pretty unbelievable but essentially you know he's over there in argentina and he's getting all this help like literally he he gets the boat he doesn't own the boat at that point he had sold it and he essentially was like i need to do this i need to go on this mission and he lets people know and they're just they're giving him everything left, right, and center. He's got all these friends that are coming in and they make sales for free. They buy the boat for him. Um, they give him all these provisions, all sorts of like, I couldn't even imagine. It's essentially in this time and place, you know, he was, he was just, he said he was going to go do this miraculous impossible route. And everybody was like, yeah, let's do this. And so they just pitched in. I mean, literally, I, I think he had I think he only had a few pesos in his pocket. Um, and even right before he left, one of his friends asked him, like, how much money do you have? And he looked and he was like, yeah, not much. And the guy's like, what? You're going to try and go around the world with that? And gave him 10 uh, British pounds. And uh, so that was his budget essentially going forward. But he and a buddy hop on the boat and sail it um, – up to another port of Montevideo or something like that. And just to, to sort of be right on the edge, I think it was like a 21 hour sail. And then it's just blowing right before he's about to depart. They have like three days of just, you know, gale force winds coming off the mountains and he's kind of looking out there and, and wondering what it's going to be like offshore. And, you know, again, this is, this is in uh, late June uh, which is pretty much uh, springtime, late winter, early spring. No, I guess that's just winter down there. Oh, my God, I couldn't even imagine. But one of the things, one of the reasons he has to leave at that time, though, I'm sure in his head was that, you know, he's racing the seasons to get to Cape Horn because Cape Horn, you know, without a doubt, is the most feared because you have to be the farthest south. And so for him, you know, starting in the – in the winter is the only way he's going to be able to get around Cape Horn by, you know, the end of summer, beginning of fall before the winter time comes back in. So, you know, I definitely know that feeling when you're, you're looking at an ocean chart and of like the Indian ocean and then the South Pacific. And you're thinking, dude, all right, I got to get there in the next like three months. And so you're, you're plotting really, really far ahead. So eventually, you know, he's just like, dude, I, I, I have to go. And so hops on, hops on the boat and his, his boat essentially, um, I, it's the name of it is L E H G two. So it's like leg two. And it, it says on Wikipedia that that's named after the four initials of, of notable people in his life. So who knows? Maybe it's uh, family members. Maybe it's some ladies. You never really know. Um, but essentially his boat, I want to get right to the page that sort of describes it a little bit. Um, but it goes through, you know, it's like 31 feet long. So it's very comparable. It's known as the Norwegian double ender. Um, and it was built, he built it over in France and it's made out of wood. So it's 31 foot six inches long a beam of 10 foot 10 inches the draft of five foot eight inches cast iron keel weighing 7,700 pounds um 290 gallon water tanks all that sort of stuff so very it's catch rigged as well so it's got a main mast and a mizzen mast very popular very similar i'll bet to knox johnson's boat sue haley and even though a west sails a sloop 
And it's pretty similar dimension-wise to uh, to the almighty Sparrow. So we're all in good company here. But uh, yeah, so it's blowing a gale. And he's just like, dude, I, I have to go. And so he just takes off. And he has a heck of a time. I mean, the seas are really bad. And, you know, he he essentially... Uh, you know, he's out there and he's just getting bashed for like two, three days in a row. It just doesn't let up. And, and some of the old salts had told him, they were like, well, you remember, these are coastal winds. And, and once you get out there, it'll it'll be a lot better. But he's down. He's, he's right next to the roaring 40s. So that time of year, it's not going to get any better. You know, it's just basically a, a gale, essentially, every couple of days, three to five days, I would suppose. Um, and... You know, he, he suddenly starts, uh, and he's got a fully provisioned boat. I mean, he's he literally doesn't have money to restock anywhere, although I'm sure he's possibly assuming that people are going to continue their charity um, and help with the voyage. But in any event, fully laden boat, I mean, he's got, he's got jars of everything packed in the bilges, all that sort of stuff. And he starts noticing that... Um, he starts noticing that he's got water in the bilge one night and he goes down to like light a match and he can't do that because they're all wet and like it's kind of a gruesome scene and it's really rough out and stuff. He's still carrying a good amount of sail and essentially, yeah, he finds the leak. He has to take all these stores out of all the bilge all the way up to the bow and that's where he finds the leak and essentially one of the planks had busted um, and so it was letting a good amount of water. And, and back then, you know, essentially all he could do at that point was they would use like another plank. They would use like a, a lead, a lead sort of paint and some putty and then some canvas. And they just set that sucker right on top of there and, and bang a new plank right over the top of it. Just to not to obviously you're not going to fix the leak that way, but, um, you're definitely going to arrest how much is coming in because he doesn't have a bilge pump. He's only got a bucket. Which also, I mean, for the time, yeah, I suppose that's uh, not too, too unusual because um, there's no electricity on this boat. You know, it's 1942. And, you know, so he's just bilging bucket after bucket after bucket, but he's banging himself up and, you know, he's got land hands. So everything's all soft and, and you know, um, supple, let's say. And when the ocean, when you first get out there, like you cut your hands all the time and you have to kind of watch it. Because if you do a deep cut, um, you know, the, the thought and possibility of infection are definitely there. Now, he was given a huge amount of medical supplies before he left. And they were all like sample supplies from like doctor's offices and stuff, not for resale. And he kind of funny in the book. He's like, and not not to worry the law, but none of these were purchased. They were all given to me. Um and, and so, you know, the next he's, he's trying to like, you know, bandage up his hands and stuff, but within a couple of days, his, his, he starts to see some infection in the wounds in his hand and it's so bad. Like he can't really even tell where the worst of it is, but his arm is starting to hurt and it just starts swelling up and day after day, like it's getting worse and worse. And it like gets to a point because he goes through a little bit of a calm and he's giving himself these these injections, some sort of antibiotic. And eventually it gets so bad and he's in another patch of a gale and it's it's real rough and there's there's water coming in the bilge again. He can barely do anything because he's got one arm that's all swollen like to twice its size. He's dripping pus all over. It's super gross. And he's thinking like he's in so much pain, he can't sleep anymore. It's going on for days. He's too far out now. He's like 500 miles offshore to be able to get back in time. And he's considering lobbing his arm off. Um, he, he has this sort of fillet knife and then he's got an ax and he's sort of trying to figure that out. And I think eventually before he does that, he ends up, he ends up like putting it in, in the hands of the saints and he says like a prayer or whatever. And then, uh, ends up passing out, going unconscious and, he wakes up like two days later and he wakes up to the sight of, his, of a huge hole in his hand that's just like pouring pus out of it. And he goes and takes his marlin spike. It's such a gross chat, like description of what he does, but he, he claws in there to get as much of it out as possible. And then day after day, it starts to get better. So he kind of avoids that. Um, 
but it's it's just rough like it's 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 not easy to uh, uh he, he's just he's in the thick of really really bad south atlantic weather and at a time of the year where you just don't you wouldn't want to be doing that you'd want to be down there in like december uh january then then you'd be able to get across pretty uh pretty neatly but in any event, uh, one of the things that caught my eye is he talks about after after all this goes through and he's starting to feel better, he decides, well, you know, it's been like a week or so and I'm going to go ahead and have my first big meal. And he cooks some soup and fries up some potatoes. And he talks about, he's like, you know, it may sound simple, but when you go through days and days of not having any of it and expecting only cold meals, you know, this little treasure of this, this meal, you know, is pretty, pretty unbelievable. It's like a banquet and, you know, maybe that's the secret to life. And that was something I've, I've always talked about that where, you know, when I went across the Pacific and my rations were getting leaner and leaner and leaner and options dried up and the joy was being sucked out of every bit of life. Uh, when you would find some little morsel that all of a sudden, you know, this thing two weeks ago would have been nothing is now one of the greatest treasures I have on the planet. There's something to be said for that. And, you know, the only way to really get that sort of appreciation level for anything is to sort of starve yourself of it. So, you know, take take your uh, take your coffee that you love away for enough time that when you finally do get a cup of that, you're like, oh the greatest thing ever so i don't know kindred spirits i'm not gonna lie this guy is pretty dope and that's not me saying i'm i i just understand him i would never ever i mean this kid's a pioneer he is a pioneer i've sailed some of the waters that he has but i i don't know it'd be it'd be interesting though to sit down and be able to like talk to talk to the late uh vito dumas and, and tell him about my trip going around without stopping that'd be uh That'd be pretty cool. Maybe it'd be impressive to him. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah, then essentially he just he's just punching through at that point. And he's starting to get into the rhythm of it. But, um, you know, he starts going through. He, he goes through a pretty nasty storm that gets cranking up to like 70 knots and stuff. And his he, he does at one point, he's so tired because uh, he would spend a huge amount of time. He said he never, once he got past 30 hours up on the helm sailing, you know, he would start making mistakes after that. And there's one point where he, he says he rounds up into the wind and then just goes down below. And I'm assuming what he did was go and lie a hull. Um, so he either rounded up into the wind and he probably just had like the teeniest bit of sail up and he was, you know, for reaching or uh hove to or something like that but you know the stories i always heard was that he was he was all about you know keeping sail up at all costs and keeping the boat speed up and all that sort of stuff and kind of read that and was like what wait a minute you never hear about that sort of stuff but um when the when the leak came back really strong of this plank uh, at one, during one storm, he had a honey jar, like a big one, pounds of honey crack open. And he's like, <laughs> and it like sticks, it's all sloshing around and it's basically, you know, making life very miserable. And that, that reminded me of this, uh, story my old man told where they had one of those huge, like round chalices of wine, you know, where it's like, I, I don't know, five liters or something. This is way back in the 70s 60s or 70s and they were sailing up to new caledonia and that thing broke in the boat you can imagine you know a couple gallons of red wine sloshing around in a boat what that's going to smell like not only immediately but uh you know a day after oh it'd be absolutely awful um uh but yeah essentially um you know he just keeps making his way across making his way across he runs into a couple of ships um, there's one point it's pretty spooky where where he runs across he sees two ships out in the distance remember this is wartime and they've got no lights on and he tries to contact them you know with his little he's got he's got some sort of flashlight sort of thing and uh, essentially all he sees is them steam off in opposite directions so they must have thought he was a submarine or something like that it's, and it kind of put into perspective really the uh 
kind of the general feel the world probably had. And even, you know, out in the sea, this, this wild, natural place that you think, you know, you're sort of far away from all this land and all the people and all the problems of society. But in actuality, at this time, during World War II, that, that reached every, every inch of our planet, I believe. So pretty, pretty interesting because then he runs in and he thinks he sees a whale at one point and then it ends up being a submarine and he's able to chat with these, uh, these two warships and essentially find out. And he goes to, he's, you know, normally back in the day, you'd, you'd always ask any, any ship. Uh, merchant or ship of war, you'd ask, you know, what, what my position is. And the first answer he gets back from one of them is he's just like, we can't tell you that Uh, in times of war, we can't give that information. And, and luckily somebody comes up, he he ends up like begging and pleading and finally throws the position out that he thinks he's at, because he's got pretty basic navigation tools. And uh, uh, essentially the, the captain's like, no, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. And then somebody from behind him kind of was like, yes. <laughs> so they, they kind of took pity on him a little bit. But, um, yeah, Un- unbelievable. They wouldn't give him the position. Uh, he ended up having a pretty severe knockdown. And this is where uh, the, first, the first of the great uh, Vito Dumas sort of sailing techniques uh crops its little head out and basically he's carrying just staysail and mizzen sail he's running down wind uh big huge waves all that sort of stuff and he's down below and for whatever reason he's got his hatch open it sounded like and he's he said you know he wakes up to all this stuff being thrown on top of him water sloshing in down the companionway and all that sort of stuff and boom he had been knocked down by a big wave and he he considered it for a little bit and was like, yeah, you know, I was probably blanketed behind one of these giant waves with not enough sail up and we couldn't outrun the breaker like we had been doing. And that's why we were overcome and and basically knocked down. So it was sort of the that was the uh, and that was the first semblance of the the Vito Dumas way of of riding out a storm you know always have some sail up and keep the speed going which is what Motissier sort of uh em, what's the best word emulated and then um that's that's what I tried to do as well uh when I went into pretty big ugly heavy weather and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't uh but after 55 days out at sea he makes it um and pulls into Cape Town. And when he's pulling into Cape Town, the pilots come out and they're like, you know, you, you need a pilot to enter. And pilots, you know, they always charge you these crazy rates and he doesn't have very much money. And he's like, well, well I'm not a merchant, uh, so I'm a yachtsman. I don't need I don't need the pilot services. And the pilot goes off grumbling and one of his cohorts is like, yeah, well, but he's a yacht, so. He doesn't need it. And uh, <laughs> so it kind of starts off with this like un- unwelcomeness from the pilot who gets uh, sort of robbed of his money. Uh, but then as soon as he pulls in, uh, essentially, it's just a huge party. Like people know who he is. They hop on board. They're just drinking, smoking cigarettes, just like crazy. So like two in the morning. And then uh, essentially it ends with him talking about how, you know, every single night he for the for the remainder of the weeks that he was there every single night he'd have to wake up and run into the cockpit to make sure that he in fact was in port and that's that's a hundred percent real um even on trips of only a couple of weeks when you go from ocean especially very very rough ocean to tied up to a dock and your boat's motionless and not making any noise. Holy cow. Does that play tricks on your brain? Wow. Woo. So enjoyable. So enjoyable to have this little fireside reading day. This is really great. Um, hope you're enjoying it. Uh, the next ocean will be the Indian ocean. So that's coming up next. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to have this all wrapped up for you pretty quick. So just wait a second and I'll be back for more. And welcome back. Now we're going to go into, uh, just continue right along with uh, the story of Vito Dumas. 
Sailing through the roaring 40s, and in this section is the Indian Ocean, so Cape Town to Wellington, New Zealand. So essentially, he sets off uh, in mid-September, which is pretty early to be going (laughs) across the Indian Ocean, uh, across the southern Indian Ocean. And he's worried. He's uh, rightfully so. It's a a really dangerous part of the world, and, and sort of being a pioneer uh, and you may hear the crackling of a fire uh, behind me, side note, so just had to stoke that. I'm still up here in northern Michigan, and uh, it's cold, and I'm spending my, actually, a, a really wonderful day. I can only attribute it to uh, or compare it to a nice day of sailing and lying in your bunk and just reading. Well, I'm in northern Michigan, it's snowing outside, and I've got a nice fire, and I'm sitting, and I'm reading. Very healthy healthy sort of thing to do but anyway so Vito takes off and you know the boat is now a bit more in shape he's had some time he was only there in South Africa for a few weeks so it wasn't like a total refit or anything like that and yeah he's he's worried I mean the Indian Ocean is scary Um, when I set off and entered that you know getting past the Agulhas current and then getting into the Indian Ocean proper is it's scary. It really is. Um, I was very um, I, I was always thinking about how Bernard Mortissier was was worried about it and always felt like it was the most dangerous ocean and just violent and and unpredictable. It's so close to the ice line and and Antarctica and everything. It just I don't know. It's scary when you get into the Pacific, sort of. If you're running in the roaring 40s, Antarctica is pretty far away. But in the Indian Ocean, it's it's kind of like right there. And I don't know. There's something about that ocean that uh, is different than any other. So ye be warned there. But he essentially uh, leaves and just is becalmed almost immediately. So he's in a pretty bad spot because the Agal's current is so strong. So it's kind of sweeping him all over the place. And he's... He's got a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear. You know, he he keeps thinking of of his route as essentially, you know, it's been it's been dubbed the impossible route um, to do in a small boat by yourself, and and he's taking that on. So, I mean, quite a challenge to undertake for sure, and really exceptional uh bravery i would say to to take it on and and just go for it and no matter how scared you are you still he unties the lines and he goes for it but uh you know in in that area with the agullus current and stuff it's it's a phenomenal place where a lot of ships have gone down and he talks a little bit about you know he's kind of keeping an eye out for the flying dutchman a ghost ship that appears there and and he talks a little bit about all that sort of stuff and and uh sort of the i don't want to say superstition of of ghost ships and things like that but you do especially when it's like you're you're becalmed and you're in a really unfamiliar place the the worries of the supernatural that can come from the depths of the ocean uh, have a way of really entering into your psyche and it's definitely happened to me quite a bit and much like thinking about bears and mountain lions on the Appalachian Trail you just have to kind of put it out of your head you know you gotta you gotta take control of of your thought process and try and trick your brain into thinking of other things but he he relates a story that happened to him when he was sailing out I think it was on his previous boat and he had been out at sea for like a day for 24 hours and he's up on the helm and he he swears he can hear two people down below and he's convinced that there's two stowaways on his boat up forward and they're talking about trying to go and grab some food uh, they keep demanding like cigarettes. They're talking amongst themselves, I guess. And he eventually goes down because he, he's in kind of some bad weather. And he eventually goes down below the next morning or that night. And he, you know, he's lighting matches trying to find where these people are. I mean, he's fully convinced, fully convinced that there's people on his boat. And it's a little tiny boat. And uh, he can't find them anywhere. And he goes back up on deck and he thinks maybe they, they jumped overboard and, and swam to shore because they, they were just kind of coastal, coastal cruising. 
And uh, to this day, he has no idea, but he's absolutely 100% certain that he heard people's voices and they were having conversations and all that sort of stuff. So kind of kind of freaky, you know, it, uh, that sort of thinking, like I said, it gets into your head a little bit. You know, you think about Joshua Slocum and, and his time with the storm with the um, I think it was the was maybe the skipper off of the Pinta or the Santa Maria or something like that. And I don't know. It is, it's kind of weird. I, I, I came across that, uh, completely blacked out either oil tanker in the South Atlantic that had no lights on, no engines on, nothing. It was just floating out there hundreds of miles offshore. Uh, that was a little bit strange. All I had were the two not under command lights and, you know, it's kind of weird. You see that sort of stuff, but I, in in all actuality, in all the miles that I've sailed out at sea, I've unfortunately or fortunately never seen any like two weird, you know, Gulf ships. Like thinking I'm seeing a tall ship off in the distance or something like that. But it does get into your psyche a little bit, especially when you're alone and um facing down an immense challenge and you've got all the pressures of that and all that sort of stuff but he starts getting into the the heavy weather pretty darn quick and he's got he has an incident with water spouts and i saw a few of those in the indian ocean as well and he he talks about seeing three of them that were whipping right down getting close to him and uh, he didn't really know what to do he had heard of some old naval ship that that actually steamed into one to see what the damages would be like, but obviously that's a big, you know, naval ship, so it didn't really smashed a couple lifeboats, but it didn't do much else. Um, it's kind of a weird, weird feeling because you kind of want to keep your sails up and try and keep moving. I guess the the winds in front of this uh, this front of of water spouts was essentially very light and so he didn't have much maneuverability but he tried to switch course a little bit they ended up passing about 500 yards off uh off his off his beam but it is it's it's an interesting thing when you see these because you know i mean if if it comes right over the top of you it's going to shred any canvas you've got up i mean you're going to have insane winds for maybe just a few seconds but that can be enough and I remember seeing them a few times and just getting ready, getting ready to drop all sail as fast as possible, drop the Dodger, drop anything that's not just firmly bolted to the boat. That was always my plan. Luckily, all the water spots I've ever seen have always passed by or they've dissipated before they've gotten uh, to the boat. So that's something I hope I never have to experience, but they are a sight to behold. They're really interesting. They're they're serpentile, if that's a word, you know, they're sort of snaking and they're moving and they're right there and they're huge. They're on the, you know, the horizon or whatever. And so you can't keep your eyes off them. They almost have a hypnotic sort of way about putting a sailor into a trance, if you will, if that doesn't sound too, uh, too odd to say, but it, it does. I mean, you, as soon as you see one and you, you can pick them out because they're just odd. They're totally odd when you see them. And against a gray sky, you've got just a darker gray funnel. And when it hits that ocean and starts sucking the water up, it's like, whoa, that's like a powerful force. I want to get out of here. <laughs> so that that's pretty crazy. And um, But shortly thereafter, he, he goes down below and he finds that his bilge, again, is filled with water. But this time it's different. It's fresh water and the troubles begin. And it's so funny as I read this book, I just keep getting more and more of these, these not coincidences, but essentially his trip and my trip have so many things that uh, coincide as far as things that happen. And, and maybe it's just the fact that, yeah, when you sail a 30, two-foot boat uh, around the world, you're going to end up with a lot of the same issues and stuff like that. But he essentially, he's got, he has like a 40-gallon water tank, he has a 20-gallon one, and then he has a couple jerry cans, and his 40-gallon one, the rivets had basically popped free. And so he lost all that water. So he's down, down to probably like 30, 40 gallons left, which isn't a lot, especially for starting off on the trek across the Indian Ocean and for me it was uh, 600 miles into the ocean that uh, my little water pump broke and 
you know, it's just a game changer out there. And he's obviously the only thing he could do is catch water, but he doesn't reference any of that. I don't know if he even tried. I mean, he talks about the rest of his supply getting brown and, and pretty gross, but he just kind of kept up with that. I don't know. I, I, it's kind of strange that he wouldn't at least try and catch water, but maybe he just didn't have the, maybe he didn't have the equipment to do it, but he, I know he had a bucket cause he was always bailing out his cockpit. I don't think he had any scuppers in there. Um, kind of interesting. Some, some stuff he hits on, but you know, it's a book. So it's going to tell you the story, the version that he wants to, but um, he talks a lot about the islands to the north, you know, Ramirez and Diego Garcia and all these islands that are kind of up to the northeast of Madagascar as he's sailing further and further out into the ocean and considering, you know, oh, maybe I could take a little break up there. And, and he says he says he wants to go to learn the history of the places, which obviously would be super sweet. But um, at the same time, it's it's one of those things that it, it kind of always is there when you're sailing around the world down south. You know that to the north there's islands. Some of them are beautiful tropical paradises. Some of them are rocky, craggy outcrops. But they're all the same in that they're all land. And they're all a haven and they're all a break from the constant pressures and the constant never-ending battle of being on the ocean by yourself in a small boat and he sort of he he kind of keeps wiping his 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 uh, mind clean when it comes to those those thoughts as you do I mean every time I looked at a chart when I especially when I was in the Pacific and you know Fiji and Tahiti and Tuamotos all those are up there you glance at them and you're like oh man we could just turn north instead of keep going but I don't know. I was able to wash that from my brain as well pretty easily. So it never became too much of an issue, but it's always there. There's something about it always being there that it's, I don't know. It's like a little, little somebody dangling a little treat for you. Oh, but if you take it, you know, you've, you've given in. And if you, if you can abstain, then you're, you're, you're really in it to win it. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, so he has he's sort of battling with that and all that stuff, but he's he's making his way out, and it's rough. It's it's ugly weather. It's Indian Ocean in September, October. It's essentially heavy, heavy stuff. So he starts to head a little further north, and he goes from being at you know about I think about thirty eight degrees south, and he heads up to about thirty five degrees south. And I know I remember in Motissier's book, uh, The Long Way, he talks about wanting to take that track as well. And I remember I wanted to take that track. I'm just like following suit, you know. You do what worked for the people in the past, and I don't think I ever went quite that high. Um, oh no, I did, I did because the next stop essentially is um, or not stop, but he cites. At least he cites the clouds that are over the top of Amsterdam and St. Paul Islands. And those are dead right in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And they're the only things that are that far out there. I remember getting within, ah, I want to say, 15 miles, 20 miles, something like that. I could just see it. Just see it. And I have pictures of, of me when I was out there. And I think if you probably looked with a magnifying glass, you might be able to see like a smudge in the background that is Amsterdam Island. And I don't know, it was, it was kind of cool. That's always been one of my favorite things to do or favorite events when you're, when you're offshore for weeks and weeks or months and you finally, you know, breeze by some, some little Island outcrop sort of thing. And there's just, it, again, it's magnetic. You can't stop looking at it. It's just this event that happens and it rises out of the horizon and, and then it just as quickly drops away. But I think some of my favorite favorite island sighting, obviously, is uh, uh, in the Caribbean when you're sailing you know, from Down Island back up to the Virgins and stuff like that. And one of my favorite islands to sight is always the island of Saba because it's, it's just huge and it's, it's pyramidal shape. Like it, it looks like a giant volcano and it's not spread out at the end. It just comes out of the sea like boom. And that one's, that one's very impressive. I've seen that one a million times come out of the ocean and it's always, always really, really cool. 
Uh, but he he does his little flyby there. There's tons and tons of sea life and whales and all that. And he talks about the whales and how he, he doesn't really like seeing whales much, much uh, like I don't really like to see them because I, I've just seen too many, too many video clips of whales breaching and landing on a, on a vessel or whales, you know, the Essex and all that. I just, I, I like seeing them from afar. I don't like seeing them close by, but he sees one at night and he tries to, I guess it gets very curious to the boat and he takes his little electric uh, flashlight out there and he's, he's like, he's like turning it on and off and, and then it, it, it ends up skittering away, but it's kind of funny that he's afraid of whales too. Um, they're just big, and when they're bigger than your boat, that I think it's a, a very warranted fear. At least something to be, you have no control over the situation. So it's not like I hate whales. I definitely don't hate them. I love whales. They're they're great. I just I'd rather I'd rather see them at a distance, and and I know they're animals, so they could get curious, and one swipe of that tail can do a lot of damage. So. Always a little worrisome. Um, one of the other things he talks about a lot, and I kind of forget to, I, I, I forget to consider this. So again, you know, he's on a on a vessel has no engine. Obviously, there's no GPS, there's no Lauren, there's none of that stuff, and so he's doing all of his navigation through a sextant and dead reckoning and all that sort of stuff. And he's talking about the magnetic variation down there where he is in the Indian ocean. It's like 35 degrees West. So for those who don't know your compass and your chart and everything, your charts are running off of uh, true course, like true North and South. And then your compass, though, is riding off of the magnetic field of the Earth. And the magnetic field sort of fluctuates quite a bit. And there's some areas in the world where the magnetic and true are exactly the same. In the BVI, I think the variation is like 14 degrees. So if you were looking at a chart and you were looking at your compass, there's a 14-degree shift essentially in those two and you just have to sort of calculate to make sure you know you're right on but usually it's not that bad 35 degrees so you gotta if you wanted to head due east your your compass is going to be 35 degrees off of east to be able to actually be headed in the right direction and that's you know that's one of the things it's it's a little tricky to to make sure you're getting those calculations right all the time and not having the blessing of GPS to just fall back on. I mean, every time I did my calculations uh, when I was doing work with the sextant, mostly in the North and South Atlantic, um, I was always backing that up with my GPS. I would always check it. And it was great because when, when I was a half a mile or a mile out, I was super stoked. It was awesome. And when I was way off, I knew that I had screwed something up. And, you know, you even if you aren't checking it against, if you're checking it against what you're putting down on the chart, if all of a sudden you did 300 miles in the last 24 hours, yeah, you, you know you did something wrong. Um, it's not, using using a sextant to find your position is not, it's not like, oh, you get your answer and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. There's other identifiers because you're also doing dead reckoning you know what direction you've been going you know approximately your speed and so with very very basic stuff you can kind of be like uh that doesn't sound right um i'm definitely have been heading east all this time i did not go north so my position shouldn't be that and then you start over again but hats off to them i anybody that's doing that completely um without gps i think is really a uh, quite an achievement, quite a feat. I mean, even the the Golden Globe racers in 2018 and and in 22 and stuff, they're they're doing it just with the the sextant, and um, it's really it's quite incredible, quite incredible, totally. Oh, we got the cell phone. Got to turn that off. Um, but yeah, so so pretty cool that he's he's navigating all that, and he does talk about he gets in. Um, you know, he's getting out there. A month, two months, or something like that, and and he's he's going through these storms, and he has one line. He doesn't really talk about it much, but he's he talks about 
having to to stay warm and supplement his diet he's he's having a little bit of brandy and uh some other stuff and he says it's going down like water <laughs> uh tip top hats off to you there skip i love that you got you know it's um Obviously, you don't want to drink a ton when you're out at sea. It dehydrates you, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, obviously, you would never want to actually get drunk. But uh, there's something to be said, I think, for the old sundowner now and again. Knox Johnson talks about it. I know I talk about it a lot. There's definitely some times where having the availability to take a nice stiff swig off of a bottle of scotch or something like that is holy cow it's it's like a lifesaver it's like a game changer um just for morale and stuff but yeah it is uh it's something you you can't you can't mess around with by any means but boy oh boy do i have many memories of uh getting through long nights and really bad days and stuff like that and with uh with the help of just a nip <laughs> i think knox johnson used to refer to it as checking the levels of his scotch bottles. He never talked about drinking them. He just said he was checking the levels. <laughs> so that's eh, pretty cool. He also talks, uh, in his opinion, he thinks the catch or the two-masted rig for a small sailboat doing high-latitude sailing is preferable. And, you know, I, I can see how it would definitely give you some beneficial uh variations that you could you could run with i mean he's doing a lot of storm storm jib and mizzen and all that sort of stuff to weather through a lot of this stuff and you know when you just i mean i'm kind of in between having a cutter gives you the availability of three sails so i can do the staysail i can do the jib because you know when he's when he has to deal with that storm jib that's up on his force day you know at the end of his bowsprit he's doing that in ugly weather and he talks about getting pitched into the sea and all that sort of stuff and that was something I never wanted to have to deal with uh, when the weather got bad and so everything storm sails and all that stayed right in the staysail stay instead of uh, ever utilizing the force day and so I don't know I mean I could see how if you just had a traditional sloop so you just have a jib and a mainsail yeah, you, you don't have too many options in a lot of ways. I think a cutter is really good. And it's interesting if you think about Matissier going from Joshua, which was, uh, I believe, a catch, to – or maybe it was a yaw. I don't know. He had such a strange steering setup. Uh, it had to have been a catch. Yeah, it was definitely a catch. Um, and then his, his last boats that he had, I believe, were all cutter rig sloops. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. And they, his last boat, I believe, he dropped down to a 32 foot. He was kind of like, that's that's the perfect size because Joshua was 40. It was like 39 or something, 40 something overall, I believe. Hope I'm getting my numbers right. I've read those books so many times that, but it's been a while. Um, so forgive me if uh, I'm not getting all the facts right. But yeah, I I, I think it would be pretty interesting to to have that second mast. Um, and I think from a safety thing, like if you lost one, then at least you've got the other. If you, you shipped your your mizzen mast in place of a fallen main mast, that would uh, that would be pretty nice. You know, two is better than one in some respects. So I think he's I think he's on to something there for sure. But at the same time, you know, he just loves his boat and it's it's taking well good care of him. So you know, keep it keep it going. Um, he does reference. Uh, as he closes in on Australia and going under that, he gets into a storm system that ends up uh, doing the crazy, crazy fast wind shift. And this is pretty normal status quo for a low pressure system in the Southern Ocean. You know, you're getting your sort of north, northwest winds, then you get your westerly, and then you get your southwesterly. Sometimes, though, you can be in the right place and the winds essentially go from like north to south or south-southwest and almost directly opposing each other. And I can remember one time, uh, and, and what, what he talks about is seeing the sight of two opposing wave systems smacking into each other. And I remember seeing that south of Australia as well. I got hooked into about three 
eh, mild to heavy low pressure systems all in a row. And there was one in particular where the wind shift was within 30 seconds. I mean, it went from north to south, southwest, and it was instantaneous almost. And the waves, they it was the oddest thing I've ever seen. The waves had already sort of started to, you know, collide with each other. And when they would slap together just right, it would shoot a plume of like foam and spray straight up in the air. And the winds were opposing it. And it was just, I don't know, it was it was hilarious. I it looked like a bunch of water volcanoes off in the distance kind of all around and it only lasted maybe 15 20 minutes before the other wave train sort of took over but i remember like looking around and being like holy cow this is crazy i tried to capture it uh by via picture but i never got anything good out of it and uh but it was just one of those oddball things you know when when you sail across currents, like little rip currents and stuff, it, it aggravates the ocean surface. But this is like a whole different kind of level of it. And the fact that it shoots these plumes up and it's kind of happening, you know, from your boat all the way out into the distance, it, it's a really interesting sight. And, you know, it's it's chaotic and all that sort of stuff. And it's a little bit worrisome, but it's absolutely beautiful, and I'm I'm glad that uh, he mentioned that one because it just reminded me of my own experience with it. But really, really, really cool. By November fifteenth, though, he ends up uh, with a full-on cyclone bearing down, and it's a tremendous night. I mean, just awful, awful conditions. He's just getting beaten down, and he basically. One of the things he talks about is he's he's so beat up and he's so tired. He's already, oh, and side note, he's already starting to see the first signs of scurvy. He's got like ulcers in his gums and his teeth are getting a little bit loose. And he has vitamin A and, and vitamin C on board, but he had sort of slacked off a little bit as far as what he was doing, uh, taking them wise and everything. And so he started taking them again, but he's kind of, he's kind of rough around the edges, if you will. I mean, nothing unnerves a sailor more than, you know, waking up and your teeth are loose. I would, that's, that's a scary thing. I think that's a scary thing for just about anybody, uh, whether you're at sea or not. I know there's this pretty standard, nightmare that people have and I've had it myself where your teeth are all falling out and it's like ah my teeth it's kind of kind of scary but so he goes and this cyclone and he's literally so tired he's just like I'm not I'm not taking any sails down just leaving them all up so he goes into this thing with full full sail and eventually the boat is yawing around so it's just it can't stay on a course obviously because it's so overpowered and it, I can only imagine that you could you could only get away with that if you had a pretty stout but also short rig. You know, your your masts are a little shorter, so even with full sail up, you're you're not you're not so overpowered that it's gonna like snap snap the rigging or anything. Um, at least that's the only thing I can sort of think of because I know if I left full sail up on on Sparrow she'd just lean over all the way and be pretty much knocked down permanently until you took some of those sails down. Uh, I don't think Sparrow would lose her mast unless, you know, I was caught full sail and 150 knot gusts came up. But even then, I don't even know. Um, that that boat has just such strong rigging and so many, so many shrouds. It's like 14, no, 12, I don't know, 11. Oh, I miss you, old girl. I miss you, Sparrow. Uh, but yeah, he weathers that storm because he finally, after it's yawing all over the place, he's just like, dude, this is this is stupid. And he, he finally goes up and it takes him like two hours to take the mainsail down and secure it. But then everything is pretty much okay after that. He doesn't kind of relent and constantly, you know, he doesn't sit there and, and make every storm seem like the world's worst thing and... You just kind of, it comes on you, you try and describe it a little bit, and then you get through it. And and I, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, it's it's one thing if you have like the storm of all storms. Yeah, you want to get into that. You want to get into all the craziness that happens, all that stuff. I mean, when in the logical route, when Montissier talks about the first day of the six-day storm, amazing. 
amazing. I'll never forget those passages. It's absolutely tremendous, uh, suspenseful. It's a, it's a, ah, you just wish you could find out of what happened in the next five days. But, um, sometimes it gets pretty easy to, to build up what, what it's like to go through, you know, one of these one or two day gales down in the Southern ocean. And they're pretty stock, pretty standard. They're scary. There's huge waves. The wind is crazy. You never know how bad it's going to get, but you also don't have to jaw on about it all, all day long, each and every one, at least. Um, let's just say that. But, uh, he does have a site of, he's, he, besides all the whales and dolphins and all that sort of stuff. And, and the albatross are back as he's, underneath Australia and everything, he, he spots uh, a phosphorescent phenomenon, which he calls, and I'm going to, I'm going to murder it. Um, glob, <laughs> it's glob genera, glob genera, glob genaria phosphorescence. And essentially the only reason I'm even mentioning is, is I got to see this as well. He talks about how it looks like there's two foot long cylinders that light up like a flashlight and turn off. They blink on and off and they're like everywhere. So normally when you see phosphorus, it's little tiny dots or it's little flashes that are a little bigger just under the surface. Well, these, I remember seeing these, I believe in the Pacific and essentially, yeah, it's like these two foot long, they look like a giant glow stick and they turn on and off and they, you know, they're everywhere. They're just underneath the surface or at the surface. And on those dark nights, when you see that you're, you feel like you're in that movie avatar. I mean, it's crazy and it's bright, bright greenish blue and they're so cool. And it, it was like a patch of them. So I think I had sailed through for maybe 15, 20 minutes and seeing these, but you're on deck and you're just looking around like, what have I stumbled into? And I'd, I'd never heard anybody else have an experience with that um, specifically. And I thought that was pretty cool that, that yeah, old Vito and J-Rome have another, yet another thing in common. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, and then he goes on and he's able to actually cite the islands of uh the islands on the outlying part of the southern tip of Tasmania. Freaking awesome. Again, always, always great to be able to see, see the sites and, and see land. I was, I was like two, 300 miles south of Tasmania when I went. So I never got to even get a glimpse. But he was also a little worried because he doesn't have an engine and he knows that, you know, the danger is there on the coastline. And so he's always a little bit worried about that. And he's, you know, he's got all these currents and everything. It's a pretty current rattled spot. None of them are heavy, crazy, like the Gulf Stream or like the Agullis, but they're twisty and turny and you, you never know what you're going to get going across the, the South Tasman Sea because he's on his way to, to New Zealand. Um, but yeah, essentially he, he starts making his way up north because he's going to take uh, and go through the cook straight. And again, the scurvy is still with him and he's, he's definitely rough around the edges. And, uh, he tries to get into this little Harbor in Wellington and the winds are just coming straight out. Takes him six attempts. The current is pushing him. He's making no headway. So he ends up just bagging that kind of sails off in another direction. There's other boats that are around so he can see him. He's like that close. And, and finally, after 104 days at sea, uh, he sails in and he he sees the customs guy who flags him down and he's able to sail the boat right up and a whole bunch of people come down and they help him tie it off to the customs wharf and he secures all that. And then the first thing the guy says, he's like, no, 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 you got, you've got to go over on that other dock over there. And, and he's like, to hell I am. I'm not doing that. No way. He's like, you saw how long it took me. I am literally on the verge of collapse and there's no way I'm doing it. You got to go get a tugboat or something. And so they do, they go and grab the tugboat, they put them on this little dock. And, uh, he has like a terrible night's sleep because the boats, you know, it's got the ground swell there and it's all nasty and everything. And, and although he has tons of guests on board, he's just, he's exhausted. He's like way, way beyond what he was when he entered Cape town. And, um, very luckily, uh, once word kind of spread of who he was and, and what he was doing and everything, he was given, 
uh, a berth amongst the American warships at the U.S. Uh, there was some sort of naval base down there, and he he gives a big props to the U.S. Navy for that one because it was finally his boat was now in a nice, quiet resting place, safe and sound, and he could uh, feel comfortable wandering around on uh, planet Earth, the land version for for the first time in many months. So pretty cool. He's in New Zealand. This is awesome. Uh, this book again. Uh, Alone Through the Roaring Forties, really, really cool. Uh, I definitely recommend it, Vito Dumas. And we're going to have one more, one more sort of book report sort of podcast where I'm going to go through the last of it. I'm going to split it up. So this is the first section all the way up from essentially him taking off and going across South Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, and um, I'm going to do a separate one for the Pacific and the final leg of the voyage around Cape Horn. Cause I think that one's going to be uh, pretty long. I'm going to try and keep them close to an hour. So hopefully you enjoyed and uh, thanks for listening. And until next time.